Hey friends, welcome back to A Thousand Names for God, Season 1, Episode 7. These are notes on karma, reincarnation, and their psychological significance. If you're getting anything from this show, as always, please share it with your following or someone that you think uh, might also get something from it, or head to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Additionally, if you want to engage more with my work, you can go to rickalexander.com, which will be linked up in the show notes of this episode. Without further ado, on to the show. accumulated storage of impressions, experiences, potential memories, and karmic deposits onto the succeeding moment of consciousness. Now, as I get into today's episode and some of my notes on karma, it's important to understand that we are always passing the totality of who we are and who we've been onto who we've become, right? And you understand your sense of I in almost those same terms, right? Your your egoic consciousness, which is going to come into play a lot today because we're going to have to get a little bit below that sense of self. But most people think of I, you think of your continuous stream of memories. And if you were to take your stream of memories away, it would feel something like you you lost some part of, of you, something indelible to who you are. So this idea of consciousness passing on all that it's been to all that it becomes it's going to be important as we try to understand karma. Now, as I get into Eastern philosophies today, it's important that we understand a couple of things. First of all, this isn't going to be an exhaustive list or teaching on karma. Rather, I just want to explore it. I want to ask the question, what would it mean if this were true? That question is going to be important over and over throughout throughout these notes and also through this work. Because then we can start to ask ourselves, how is this psychologically applicable to our lives? Because here's something that happens a lot in in modernity. In the West, let's say that you have a rational materialistic view of the universe, right? What they would call a naturalist. You don't believe in any of the phenomena that religions are trying to put forward, right? That are that religions are positing as the root or foundation of existence itself. So if you have that view of reality, then the way that you view consciousness, for example, is matter interacting with other matter, right? So your neurons interact with other neurons, and then you get the subjective sense of being you. And then when you die, and those neurons are no longer interacting with each other, the sense of you goes away. And so you just go away, right? That's the naturalist view. But what's interesting is I've noticed that a lot of people that take the naturalist view have a hard time accepting any sort of phenomenological view. And what they do is they'll end up not listening to any of it at all. Like this was true for me when I felt as though that I identified more with atheism, which isn't the case anymore, not really by a long shot. I think I'll do an episode on that one day because I do think it's interesting. But one of the things I noticed is in that time frame, I would throw away 
entire views of reality because I couldn't get behind the phenomenological view that they were positing. And one of the great things about understanding or reading mythology through psychology is that you don't have to accept any phenomena. Right? You don't have to accept the phenomena behind the teaching to understand how this could be true in your life or how you could use it to make meaning out of your experiences, right? In this, in this show, I'm constantly asking the question, how is it that humans have made meaning out of their experiences? And then what does that mean for us today? Same thing if you've accepted one form of religion. Let's say that you accept Christianity and that that's your path, right? Well, it might be that you feel like you would throw away, you don't want to listen to like like the episodes where I'm breaking down Eastern philosophy because you've already accepted a certain phenomenological truth. And so when another one is presented, you just reject that. And again, in that same scenario, what I would say is, well, there's actually a lot of fruit here that we could tease apart from the phenomenology. And if we could do that, we could understand what it's trying to tell us. It might tell us something really important about being here. So again, I just say that because we don't have to, I'm going to go over a lot of the phenomena behind the teachings of karma, because one, I think it's cool to see where does it intersect with Western thought? Where is it completely different from Western thought? And then also, what can it teach us about what it means to be human in this moment right now? And this moment right now is the one that matters to us, right? This is what's important. And so any sort of spiritual path, any sort of thoughts on the spiritual path, in my opinion, have to make us better at being here now. If they don't do that, then I don't, I don't really see them that as helpful. They just feel like another long list of things we use to escape our lives, right? And in that sense... It's just more of a coping mechanism rather than allowing you to sink in what to what's ultimately real, right? When we don't want to face what's real, then we cope, then we escape. And a lot of times I think the spiritual path becomes that for people, just another way of escaping their life without having to really go through it. So as I get into my notes on karma here, we have to undo a bit of Western thinking. Remember in the Buddha myth, I talked about when he had his experience of awakening, he took some time and he reviewed the laws of cause and effect. This is what karma is. These are the laws that govern the energetic profile which gives rise to the universe. And the Buddha didn't create it. He discovered the laws of karma. So it's not Newtonian, right? This is something that we have to pull apart here because when we think of cause and effect, we immediately think of Newtonian. And if you have a rational, materialistic view of the universe, then it might be that you really lean on Newtonian law to explain everything. I think it's really interesting that we actually know that the Newtonian way of viewing the universe is ultimately incorrect, but we always are seeking simplistic answers and so we're always seeking to understand if we're experiencing some effect, what the cause might be. In understanding the universe energetically, we cannot look at it as linear. It's not linear cause and effect. The cause and effect might be lifetimes apart, quite literally, when we're looking using karma. So it's important to start there because I think in the West, we often... We, we try to find the simplistic cause for something. I know I've suffered because of this, because I've, I've attached the wrong cause to the wrong effect, 
and as such, I've suffered because of it. So we're we're introducing the idea that there is some sort of cause and effect in the universe, but that it's not necessarily linear and it's not rational. I'm really interested in the irrational aspects of the divine because I think that's what we need help with, right? We need help with the parts of life that are nonsensical, that don't make any sense at all to us. And this is where some of these deeper understandings of reality can be can be quite helpful. Here's a here's an example of a way that we would we would screw up the cause and effect thing. Let's say that you're starting to date somebody and you're in the first few weeks of it and you're start you're talking to them, you know, you're texting them constantly and you guys are going back and forth and it's going well. And then you kind of put something out there like you you make yourself a little bit vulnerable and maybe you say that you like that person or something like that. And then they don't text you back for like 20 minutes. And then like 30 minutes go by, they still haven't texted you back. And now maybe an hour goes by and they still haven't texted you back. Well, just by virtue of what you are and your meaning-making function, you're going to start adding narratives to what that might mean. Maybe they don't like you, right? Maybe they don't like you like you just said you like them. Or maybe they like somebody else. Maybe they never liked you, right? And so you can start adding all of these causes to the effect that you're feeling And in doing so, your physiology will actually react to the thoughts that you're having. So maybe you make yourself sick thinking about how you just were vulnerable and how it's not going to be reciprocated. And then let's say an hour and a half goes by and then she texts you back or he and they're like, hey, sorry, my mom just called. I haven't talked to my mom in a long time. Right? It had nothing to do with you whatsoever. So we have to realize that even if we accept a law of cause and effect, we cannot always know why something is happening or how something is happening. That sort of brings us back to the stoic thought that we talked about last week, right? This idea that divine providence is unfolding in a certain way and it's our job to trust that way rather than control how it happens. We can really we can really exhaust ourselves trying to manipulate our reality to make us happy or we can surrender into the fact that perhaps reality is presenting us with what we actually need, and perhaps even deeper than that, what we want, but don't even know that we want. But just understand that we're not looking for this linear cause and effect. Instead, karma is creating this web of energy that sits below the surface of our lives and is influencing how they go. And so we're always making deposits into that web. So you are always, you're always authoring energy into your life. Right? You're doing something always. You're thinking something. There's a motivation behind what you're doing. So imagine the quality of the energy that's behind the decisions you're making, and you'll start to get a little bit closer to what karma is trying to put forward. And we have to separate the Western view of body and mind here. So let's say that you are the the materialistic view. You, you do take the materialistic view. And I want to say something too, actually, real quick. You know, if you have a religious view of the world, like a certain religion that you've accepted, for example, I actually think it's prudent to give credence to other arguments, right? Not just the East, but also the people like Freud or Nietzsche who say, well, what you're experiencing as religious phenomena is actually just, that's actually just human impulse, human desire, human cravings, wearing the mask of a God image, right? Taking on this uh, mythopoetic language to help you make sense of what's happening, but there's nothing actually there. 
if you take on a religious view of the world, I think it's the prudent thing to do to understand that the rational materialistic view of reality might actually still have something to teach you. In in any case, could actually just be considered so that you can work through your own blind spots. Not that you have to accept it as your view, but that you give credence to the idea and not just dismiss it right away to protect your own view of reality because that can be somewhat dangerous. It's a better way to start to wrestle with your own belief system is to understand that the opposition does have something of value to add, maybe something of value for you. Because if you don't do that, you can always deny what everybody else thinks to prop your own view of reality up. And the only issue I would say with that is that you then put your beliefs on pretty shaky ground, right? If they can't be questioned, if the wrong question is going to collapse your faith, I would just say that maybe your faith has to be collapsed because in that collapsing and in that wrestling, though it's going to be painful, you might come up with a more sound view of reality, a more sound view that actually works for you that you're not having to deny parts of reality just to keep your ontology intact, so to speak. When I really wrestled with the fruits of war and I watched my best friend die, I my faith fell apart. But, you know, looking back, though it was painful, it was the most beneficial thing for my faith ever. I actually needed to let that really simplistic God image that didn't work for me at all die. Again, not that it's not painful, but that it's necessary. And so the opposition might, they just might have something to offer. And I think the route in, again, is always asking, okay, so what, what would it mean if this were true? So in the materialistic view of reality, again, you're, if we study consciousness from that naturalist view, then consciousness, your subjective sense of self, is actually just material interacting with other material, right? It's a neurochemical response, an amazing one, but a neurochemical response. I also think it's important to understand that whenever we get into consciousness, we're always talking about theories because nobody understands it whatsoever. There's amazing books. It's all speculation. We cannot figure out for the life of us where we actually come from or why we're here, right? And this is where, again, I think the religions can be so helpful. You know, Rob Bell said it really good one time. He's like, look, everybody wants to know who they are and why they're here. So why wouldn't you read the greatest hits, right? This is, people have been trying to make sense of this question for thousands and thousands of years. So in the East, it's not that your consciousness is a phenomena of material, Actually, the material arises from consciousness. Your body is a result of your continuous stream of consciousness, right? So what you are is something like mind as such. And as you traverse through realms of existence, the quality of your mind, the quality of the mind that you've cultivated through many lifetimes is going to dictate the quality of the realm at which that consciousness comes back into being. Not that it's not existing when you're not there, but that it's taking on different forms. So in in Buddhist thought, which is often, which was sort of an amalgamation taken from, from Hindu thought, but it's important to understand in Buddhism, it's non-theistic. So there's no deity required in Buddhism. It's actually just uh, it's a wisdom path. It's a way of viewing reality. It's a way of questioning what you see and think. It gets lumped in with religions, but 
I don't think it's 100% accurate to compare it to something like Islam or something like Judaism, right? They're, they're not, it's non-theistic. So what happens in Buddhism, though, is that there are multiple realms of existence. So let's just use the six that get talked about. And we're in the human realm, which is something like the middle. And below us, is there's three hell realms, right? So if we go down, the first hell realm is an animal. So your consciousness could come back as an animal in this in this sense. And you could see how that could be hell, but not the worst, right? Like, de- I mean, really depends on where your karma takes you. But if you're my dog, for example, your life's pretty good, but it's not as good as my life because I have freedom and I can go make other choices. I can go to college. I can use my thumbs, right? So it's, it's, a, it's better, much better than being an animal. So being an animal is like the first hell realm. Then you get into the realm of the hungry ghosts. Hungry ghosts are really interesting. They're described as these ghosts, these apparitions with really skinny arms and really big like pot bellies and who have like an insatiable appetite, but they have very little mouths, little pinhole mouths. So they're always hungry and never satiated. It's kind of a scary um, thought, you know, kind of a scary reality. And it's even worse because if you start to think about what some of our dopaminergic pathways do to us, you know, one of the key key things that engaging in dopamine, dopaminergic activities will do for you is that they will cause you to crave things outside of yourself to feel happy. It's the opposite of serotonin. Serotonin is, is more like joy and satiation. So when you're cuddle on the couch watching a movie with your family you're getting a release of serotonin and you don't feel like you need to be anywhere else but dopamine right things like booze porn drugs things like that 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 stimulate that dopaminergic pathway they actually make you crave things outside of yourself and you have to crave more and more and more to get the original feeling so it's something like the hungry goes right it simulates that that realm of existence in some way. It's like the the hungry ghost incarnate when you really um, lose yourself to a dopaminergic pathway. And then the final, then the hell below that is like a nonsensical existence. So imagine, you know, in here we have, you kind of, because we have Newtonian physics, even though we know that Newtonian physics aren't right when you get to the subatomic level, right? Like when you, right now, for example, I can use Newtonian physics to talk about my desk. It's here, right? It's here today. It'll be here tomorrow. And if I don't touch it, it'll pretty much just stay here until gravity degrades it over eons, right? Over long periods of time. But when we start to observe matter below the atomic level, right? Subatomic, you start to see that matter's not acting like it does right here. I went to... I one time listened to a lecture by one of the one of the founders of string theory at the Sydney Opera House. Such an incredible lecture. String theory, of course, has been uh, since disproved and isn't going to work. But the reason that we have things like string, string theory and the entire field of quantum physics is because we're trying to figure out what reality is actually like below what it presents to us as. Like we have the observer effect where certain certain subatomic elements or particles are there only when you observe them. And then at other times, we see that they exist in multiple places at once. So we're not, we're trying to understand the energetic profile that sits below what's obvious to us, because what's obvious to us is we're finding out is incorrect um, once you get to a certain depth of investigation. 
But because we have things like physics, which are somewhat predictable, at least how they appear to be predictable, we, our reality is somewhat predictable, and that makes it somewhat stable. And that gives us the opportunity for goodness to win out over evil, right? So remember, we're in the middle. So below us is hell and above us is heaven. And, and that every single mythology tells us something about that, right? Something like that. But in this final hell realm, as I was saying, it's like a nonsensical reality. So imagine that you are walking down the street and you walk under a tree and the tree just turns to razor blades and falls on you and just cuts you to pieces and you die. That's something like the final hell realm where, where it's like reality doesn't at all act in a predictable manner and it's tilted toward malevolence, not tilted toward goodness. Where you could make a case for here that it's actually this reality is tilted toward goodness, right? Because evil has a self-defeating quality. So you look at things like World War II, it's like no matter what, those ideologies, though they continue to pop up, aren't going to win in any ultimate sense because we seem to be tilted toward goodness. And then above us, you have the heavenly realms. And in Buddhism, there are even some realms that are not embodied at all. So there's no body required whatsoever. Well, hungry ghosts, right? It's one of them. But there are also non-embodied realms going upwards. You have this like sense of freedom when you're not confined to the finite sense of I, okay? Now, all of that's important because it's the quality of your mind, as I was saying, that dictates where you where you pop up in existence, right? Where you where you incarnate or where you go from from here. And so understood in this way, it's all of the decisions that we're making on a continuous basis, which are imprinting themselves in our consciousness, which are cultivating the quality of our consciousness, and then also dictating where we end up and where we go from here. And I'm gonna talk about how this is obviously true in our lifetime too. You don't have to you don't have to believe in multiple lifetimes or anything like that, but I'll make a case for for what some of the Buddhist thought is on things like that as well. And the Buddha said something interesting too that I think is worth reflecting on, which is just the sheer odds of being a human. You know, he said it was something like Imagine that a seal pops up in the ocean and there's a log floating and he pops his head through that log. And then one year later, he pops his head up again in the exact same place and another log is floating and his head goes through that log too. That's something like the chances of you actually being born as a human. And that's interesting because when science science tries to work that out, they come up with something like 4 billion to 1 or right all these odds that are so nonsensical that we can't even grasp how incredibly rare it is to be a human in the first place. So something like a gift that we should probably take into account as we think about our lives. In this sense, it is our continuous stream of consciousness, which is bound by karmic law, which decides where we go from here. Now, what that also means is that the laws of karma say that you are ex- what you are experiencing in some sense came from you. But we have a problem with this because we immediately think of ego, and that's incorrect whenever we say you. If I say, look, what you're experiencing now, and let's say you're experiencing something tragic, right, is actually your fault, or came from you, it's like, well, that gets into pretty unpopular territory pretty quick, not least because it's unprovable. And it seems to be that really great people go through tough shit all the time in this life, right? I think read the book of Job and it, it will it will give you that truth. You don't have to have done anything wrong. And life just works out in really terrible ways sometimes. And you go through really hard things. But we're not talking about ego function here. So whenever we say you, 
you have to at least open yourself up to the fact that the totality of who you are has is far more reaching, far wider than your finite sense of I. Remember your memory stream of I or your you know, your everyday experience of being yourself. You have to actually let that notion go. This is why in my second book, I spend a whole chapter talking about soul because in the West, it's like, well, if we can just open our eyes or open our minds to the fact that maybe there's something more to us, that's the mystery. And that keeps going. You pull that thread long enough and you are going to end up at God. This is one of the reasons why when people say, in the East, that you are God, right? Because they have a belief that Atman, which is the soul, once you really understand it and wake up to what it is, is Brahman, which is supreme God, right? So those two things cease being other than each other. And if you tell someone in the West you are God, they clam up instantly. It's like, well, no. And, And you know that you're not God because you feel how limited you are in your ability to do anything in your life. And that's where this understanding has to be teased apart because when we're talking about karma, when we're talking about these subjects, we're talking about things that are deeper than what's obvious to us about ourselves. What's obvious to us about ourselves is the tip of the iceberg, right? And you can say this psychologically too because we understand that 95% of who you are is actually a mystery to you. That's why you do things that you wish you didn't do, right? I mean, Obviously, if you were in complete control of who you are, you would never do anything to betray yourself, ever, except that's not at all what humans do. We're constantly walking away from our value systems. We constantly betray ourselves. We constantly say things that in the future we look back and we're like, why did I say that? I didn't even mean that, right? Open up to the fact that maybe there's more pulling the levers And if you do, then you start opening up to the fact that there's more pulling the levers for with everybody. So let me give you an example. If you, if somebody walked up to you and hit you with a stick, you wouldn't actually get mad at the stick, right? The stick was just, it was a tool, it was an object here. Somebody else was pulling the lever. Someone else actually hit you with that thing, so you'd get mad at that person. Well, in this example, whenever somebody comes at you with something, those people are equivalent to the stick because there are other things going on. So I've heard before, you know, I I remember talking to somebody about the homeless population one time and they were like, well, yeah, but most of them even want to be there. Like they're choosing it. And it's like, okay, well, how ridiculous is what you're saying right now? Nobody would choose to suffer all things being equal, except some people feel as though they have to suffer, as though they have to make decisions to suffer. Nobody's, nobody is choosing what they don't think is best for them right? And so what you see here is that there are things in the human experience that are pulling the levers that are beyond your conscious experience of being yourself, your finite sense of yourself. So it actually helps you to be a little bit easier with other people because when people flip you off when you're on the highway, for example, you realize that's just the stick. Like they're, they're so caught up in their own confusion and delusion about their life that they think that the thing to do right now is to flip me off, right? Like it has nothing to do with me. That's their karma. The way I'm going to react to that, that's my karma, right? That's me deciding how I'm going to cultivate the quality of my existence and my stream of consciousness going forward. Regardless of whether you think that stream of consciousness continues into other lives, again, you're always 
cultivating, authoring energy into the quality of your consciousness. And that is going to be passed on to the next moment of consciousness. And so, again, I think these, when you really start to reflect on some of these ideas, you're like, yeah, it makes more sense for me to just let a jerk be a jerk, right? It doesn't make as much sense for me to engage because that actually just starts dragging starts dragging my own sort of karmic entanglements into it. And I'm going to have to fight out of that hole. That's the thing with all of this stuff is that you're, everything that you do, you're cultivating the quality of your consciousness and you're going to be the one that lives in the state of that consciousness going forward. But this idea that all we are is ego because it's the only thing relatively available or obvious to us tends to keep us from the deeper truth of who we are, right? As I said, just introducing the idea of soul for that reason. Because, you know, if you think about God as spirit, right, which is how God is described, well, you as soul, if you think about soul, there's no edge to a soul. There's no border to a soul. Like, for example, you have an edge, you have a border, you have skin, right? And so you feel where where something like wind, spirit meets your meets your edge, your border, your skin, and and you understand that that thing is separate from you, right? But if your soul, you don't have those edges. If you do believe that you have a soul, whatever the soul is, doesn't have defined edges like your body does. So there is some place where the soul and everything cease to be other than each other. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? And this is something that I think is really, really helpful for for karma because what happens is you start backing into these ideas and you land at this place where you realize that nothing is separate from anything else if we're talking about a subtle plane of existence not in the causal plane not in the physical plane but if you do believe that there is some sort of energetic plane of existence below then you start to realize that there's a place where everything ceases to be separate from each other, right? This is where we have to really make sense of reincarnation because in the West, when we hear of something like reincarnation, we immediately, again, think of the I. It's like, okay, I'm Rick now, but maybe next time I'll be born as Susie to other other people, but I'll still be me. Like, I'll still be the I. But how the Buddha described reincarnation was a bit more subtle than that. It was a little bit different than that. He said, imagine that you have a candle and you burn that candle for the life of it. You use it. And then at the end of that candle's life, you melt it down and you remake a new candle out of it. And then that new candle gets sold into a new home, goes somewhere else or whatever. So that new candle has something of the old candle in it, but they're not the same. Right? They're obviously not the same candle at all, but there's just something of that, that energy that's the same. That's kind of how, how he described reincarnation. Alan Watts talked about it a little bit too. He said, one person comes up and says, after I die, I will be reborn as a baby. And then the second person comes along and says, after I die, another baby will be born. And what Alan Watts says is that those two people are saying the exact same thing in the Buddhist view of reincarnation, right? So there is a sense that when you find out what's real and true about you, you aren't concerned with the I anymore. The I was somewhat of an illusion. Though it's real, though it exists here in real time, 
when you get to a, a deeper understanding of who you are, you realize that there's something of you, as I've been saying, that is something of everybody else. Like there's something in there where they cease to be other than each other. So the deeper you go with your investigations, the more integrally connected we all become. And those deep integral connections on the subtle plane of existence are manifesting in some way on the causal plane, on the plane that we are in right now, right? That we exist in this physical realm of time and space. So here's another example. I heard Adyashante, he's a spiritual teacher, came in the Zen tradition, but really doesn't teach any sort of religious path, more just teaches the path of awakening. He gave us a practical way of understanding the underlying unity of all things. And this is why when people do wake up, they don't wake up as the I. You know, they don't say that they have... They, they haven't like fulfilled the egoic consciousness in some way. Rather, they talk about the we waking up through the I. And that's where these teachings on unity come from, right? This is why um, in the East, for example, that thought of we are all one, we're all connected, starts to become more prevalent. In the West, we don't talk about it as much. You'll hear it in the New Age community. But interestingly enough, in the West, we really want to hold on to our individuality, right? We want to hold on to our nuances, even if we're miserable. So it requires a whole paradigm shift. So Adyashante gave us a really good example, at least for backing into it. So he said, okay, are you the sun? And you would say, you look at the sun and you would say, no, I'm not the sun. I'm me. The sun is separate from me. Okay. Are you a tree? You say, look at the tree and you say, no, obviously I'm not the tree. I'm me. And I'm separate from the tree. I can see the tree, but it's not me. Okay. What about your arm? And it's like, okay, well, yeah, I, I am my body in some way. Like I am my arm, at least more than I am the tree, right? So, okay, great. So what happens if you take the sun away? Well, if you take the sun away, there's no more you. Well, okay, what happens if you take the tree away? Well, if you take the trees away, there's also no more you. What about your arm? Well, if you take your arm away, you don't cease to be you, like, at all, right? You don't feel even less you at all. You'll have to deal with not having an arm, but you're not going to be less you in some way. You're still you. Right? So it seems to me that the tree is more you than your arm is you. And the sun is more you than your arm is you. Because without those things, there is no you. So at what point are you not that thing? Right? You're at least dependent on it. So this is what I'm saying. The subtle plane, the place where we all are one, is always manifesting in the physical plane. And so we see it in the physical plane. And this is the idea with karma, right? You are a stream of consciousness, Right? And that the quality of that stream of consciousness is cultivating is cultivated in deciding or dependent on where you show up in existence. And this interaction between your consciousness and existence itself is karmic law. It's the thing that bounds you to certain realms of reality or certain aspects of reality. And because you realize that you're not separate from things like you feel that you are, even though you feel you are, then karmic law says the energy you author into it affects everything. So regardless of what you believe, though, I, again, I think that good teachings and understandings of karma give us a better understanding of how we act and how our actions are always authoring energy into the whole.
okay? It's not just about us. It's about the whole, but we're going to be subject to the experiences that we've cultivated, the quality of the experiences anyway. So karma is the Sanskrit word for action. So this immediately, like in the West, right, we always talk about, well, karma's a bitch. So we're thinking of the result. We're thinking of the effect. But karma in itself is the action. It's the entire process of the action. It's not just the action you perform, but also the motivation that's impelling you. So it's like, what are you serving? Why are you doing what you're doing? That's what karma is. It's not just the activity, but it's the quality of the activity. It's what's pushing you to do it. And because of this, there's nothing that is without karma. So you're always authoring energy into your existence and into your life. And in the West, that's unpopular because we want to believe that we can do the right thing for the wrong reason and that that won't come back to us in some way. It's like if the only reason we donate money is for a tax write-off, for example. And so we're being motivated by greed or delusion. And so karma is asking us to think critically about why we're doing what we're doing. And so in Tibetan Buddhists, for example, they have throwing karma, right? That has to do with the qualities of the activities that you're performing, the objects towards which you perform those activities, right? So that's what you serve, right? What you worship, what you're giving your attention to, because what you give your attention to, what you worship, is going to affect what you actually do. Your actions are telling me what you're serving, right? Even if you don't know what you serve, your actions are showing what it is that you're serving, whether you're serving yourself, whether you're serving material, whether you're serving money, whether you're serving spirit, whether you're serving love, right? All of these things are going to come out and they're going to come out in the in the quality of the activities that you perform. It's called throwing karma because you're throwing it into the future. There's a line in the New Testament where Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruits, right? And this is the same idea. Like you can't, no matter what you tell yourself, no matter what you say, the fruits of your actions are going to show what you actually believe, what you actually feel, what you're actually motivated by. And so something that you're creating now is going to have a repercussion in the future. And the way that it's said that this happens is that activities are imprinting themselves on your continuum of mind. We can just look at this psychologically in this one lifetime, right? So when you do anything, imagine that the quality of that thing, the quality of the decision you're making, the thing that you're doing itself is imprinting itself on your consciousness, whether you're watching the media, whether you're watching, you're scrolling on Instagram, whether you're looking at porn, whether you're reading a book, it's always imprinting itself on your consciousness. And so it's going to affect what's happening in the future. I talked about this idea of dopamine, right? I talked about how when you give into a dopaminergic pathway, it becomes harder down the road not to give into that. It's imprinting itself on your continuous stream of consciousness in some real and substantial way. With dopamine, we can actually look at the neurochemical pathways that are making that possible but in any case, you land at the exact same, you land at the exact same place, which is what you're doing now is going to affect what you're doing in the future. This is why the I'll quit later thing is so damn difficult because you're digging the trench deeper, right? If you're not quitting right now, for example, right? If if you want to quit something and you're like, ah, I'll quit later, it's like, okay, but it's gonna be harder later than it is right now. And that's something that we have to come to terms with. And in Modernity, in our culture, 
we become unconscious of a lot, right? I mean, just think about the way that social media in, affects us. When we are scrolling for hours con- uh, unconsciously on Instagram, it's like you can fall into a hole and a full hour can go by and you really have no recollection of what you were just doing except you were doing it. But the thing to understand about the human condition is that how you do one thing is how you do everything because it gets very difficult to silo parts of your life. Like it's hard to be like, I'll be unconscious here, I'll be unconscious at work, but then I'll come home and be with my family. It's like, no, you're patterning being unconscious. And so that's imprinting in your consciousness. And so it's going to be very easy for you to fall into that pattern later on. This is something that became really obvious to me in a breakup one time. Because, you know, when you have a breakup or or when something falls apart, like a business or something, you become uniquely aware of all of the ways that you didn't show up for yourself. You know, you can repress them when you're in it. It's so easy to fool yourself when you're in a situation. But once the situation ends, especially if it ends in an adverse way, you're going to be uniquely aware of all the things you could have done better, I guarantee it. All the things that you you brushed off in the moment, right? And so I noticed one time that I spent hours on the couch, like I would just be on Instagram unconscious scrolling through it. But then what would happen is like my girlfriend would come home from work and then I would still be unconscious scrolling through Instagram, even though she's right in front of me. And then we break up and I realize, oh, I'd give anything to go back and not be unconscious during those moments. To like just be there to like actually appreciate the human that's in front of me. Because if we take karma seriously, right, it forces us, if this is true, what does this mean for me now? If we take it seriously, it forces us to realize that everything matters. Every single thing that you do matters. And here's the kicker. This is what's hard for Western people. You don't know why it matters and you don't know how it matters, right? So this is what I was saying. You can't, cause and effect are difficult because you don't know why things are happening and you have to uh, sort of open up to realize, look, I don't know how this is going to come back to me in the future, but I do know that I have an opportunity to cultivate the quality of the life that I want in this moment now and that I should take it because I don't know what the next moment's going to be. And I might have to deal with some of the negative things I've done in the past and the next moment. And so every opportunity is a chance to right the ship, so to speak, or to say in another way, to author the energy into the world that you actually want to be a part of. And so if everything matters, everything matters, the way that you do dishes, the way you do things you don't like, the way you do things that you do like, the when you're sitting at work and you have a pang of truth that maybe this isn't the job for you. That matters. When you're in a relationship and you're like, ah, I don't know if this relationship's serving me, or maybe there's something that I need to say that's true for me right now. That matters, right? Everything matters. And you don't know why or how. This, again, brings us back to the Stoic view. It's like divine providence is unfolding, reality's unfolding in some real and substantial way. And you don't know why or how, but you're best to accept it. Because, you know, Carl Rogers, one of the Uh, humanistic psychologist said, the curious paradox is that once I accept myself, then I can change. Not before. You can't change what you don't accept. And so whatever the quality of your life is right now has to be accepted in its fullness. And then you can actually do something to start changing it, to to start creating a different result for yourself. It's once I accept something, then I own it enough to actually change it. If I don't own it, if it's not part of me in some integral way, I'm impotent to do anything about it whatsoever. 
So if we take karma seriously, it's the realization that this moment is really, really important. Remember what I talked about in the spiritual path. Turn toward your life. That's where the fruit is. That's where the beauty is. It's in your life here now. You're not here to escape it. You're here to be here. Unless you think that this whole thing's a mistake. Unless life didn't take up form as you for some real and integral reason. But that's a hard philosophy. That becomes pretty untenable to defend. So I think you're better off assuming actually everything that you're experiencing, there is some some reason. It's something that you need for your own growth in some way, for your own consciousness expansion. And so when you look at something like the Eightfold Path, right, it's designed to make you think more critically about everything that you're doing, right? The tenets of the Eightfold Path, right action, right speech, right livelihood. What it's doing is saying, listen, every single thing here matters. It's all going to matter in the future because it matters now. And so if you inject consciousness into it, you can make the best decision possible it's really hard to do that when you're unconscious. So any sort of activity that you have, whether it's social media or, or some habit, if you don't inject consciousness into it, eating, right, how we eat, the way that we fuel ourselves, if you don't inject consciousness into it, it's going to spin out of control before your very eyes and you'll lose control of it and it'll be much harder. So something like the Eightfold Path is designed to help you start working through your karmic entanglements, the things that are tying you to the causal plane of existence. But even if you don't buy any of that, again, the idea of saying, wow, what a, how I talk, how I think, how I act is actually really, really important. You start thinking critically about it and you start to realize that Actually, it's probably the most useful thing I could do is inject consciousness into my everyday experience so that I don't put everything on autopilot. This idea in the West would be something like considering that you're punished by your sins, right? I think really poor understandings of religious doctrine can have you say something like you're punished for your sins. And then you end up with something like that. <laughs> I can't even remember. There's like the evangelical preacher who was saying Haiti is essentially being punished, you know, with their natural disasters because of their culture. And it's like, yeah, this is what happens when you don't understand cause and effect, right? When you're, when you're simple minded and you're, you're trying to act as if reality is linear in some way. But you know, what's a better understanding is realizing that you are punished by your sins. Because in this case, a lack of consciousness, for example, is its own punishment, right? Because if you have a, think about, let's talk about consciousness this way. This might be a good way to explain it. I think as a metaphor for consciousness, we use vision, right? Or awareness. So you're aware of more, your consciousness is going to be higher. And the reason we use the word higher is, imagine that you're on the ground floor of a jungle and you're looking around and you have a certain view of reality. But then imagine that you climb like a 300-foot cell phone tower, and then you can look out at reality, right? You see much more of what's real, of the situation in which you are nestled in. And so for this reason, higher is a metaphor that makes sense when we talk about consciousness because you're actually becoming aware of more. So when you're at low levels of consciousness, you're going to run into more friction, right? Think about racist people, right? So, so for example, like if you're racist, you're, you have demonized the other, something that is other than you. And when you start down that road, you're never going to run out of things that are other than you. You're going to find more and more and more division. It's going to 
beget itself. And so because you have some sort of fear about the other, fear begets more fear. So it's going to keep growing. You're going to have less freedom. There's always going to be something that you feel like you have to vanquish or get rid of or get away from. And so you're, you are absolutely punished by your lack of consciousness. But as consciousness grows and you see more, what seemed like division, remember this is what happens when we expand consciousness, what seemed like division resolves itself And then you get into a higher state of being. You have more freedom, more harmony, more ease, less friction in your life. It's the same idea, right? That's what it means to say that we're punished by our sins. When you're you're in a low level of consciousness, there's always blame. You always have to blame other things because the reason being is you feel victimized by your circumstance until your consciousness rises. And then you see that you're not at all victimized. You just didn't have a clear view of what was going on around you. You didn't have a clear view of reality. And so in that case, what happens when consciousness rises is that we tend to take ownership over our lives, right? And that is the way of moving through fear. We're not victimized by fear anymore, right? We actually take ownership for the things that we are afraid of, but we lean into courage. We own the things that are happening in our lives, the things that are around us, because if we own them, remember, then we're free to change them. But when you're a victim to life, there there really isn't much you can do. So a really good understanding of karma says, in some way, in some sense, in some view of reality, you've had your hand on the throttle this whole time, right? It's like, imagine there's a, there's a frequency dial. You're, you're controlling the intensity of your experience and the quality of your experience. And you always have your hand on that dial. And so then it, it starts to put some of the power back into your own hands. You, you're responsible then for the quality of your own conscious experience, for the quality of the life that you're cultivating, for the quality of the things that you're allowing to imprint themselves on your consciousness. And interestingly, the Buddha understood that there was some sort of randomness to it all too that had to be accepted. But it's you that decides how it's accepted. You land in this place where if you take karma seriously, the only thing you can do is accept your life fully, wholeheartedly. And imagine you have reoccurring thoughts, you have reoccurring habits, you have reoccurring things that you don't like about yourself. And we fight those, right? Sometimes we internalize the tyrant that raised us or or had some hand in raising us. And so we become the tyrant to ourselves. And we try to other that same energy in ourselves, that same thought process that we don't like, or we fall short of our own ideal. But we don't just do it once. We do it time and time again. And so we beat ourselves up. Well, if you lean into karma, you land at the realization that all of those things are just part of your dharma. You know, it's just, it's your, well, to use a Western phrase, it's your lot in life. And you just accept your lot. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you can't do anything about the fact that you have those reoccurring thoughts, except cultivate more consciousness, try to do it better next time. But you're always doing the best that you can with the tools that you have. You're always doing what you think you have to do to survive or what you've learned to do to survive. And so you you just start to accept these things about yourselves, all your neuroses, all your sexual fantasies that you hope that nobody ever finds out, right? All of that, when you start to accept that, you realize that all of that is just old karma running off, running itself off. But you're not responsible for engaging with it you're responsible for cultivating consciousness and then you just you get some objectivity from it you watch the thoughts go 
You're not obligated to beat yourself up for it or to become the tyrant that raised you. None of that. You just you just accept it. You just accept it as old karma running off and you continue to inject more and more consciousness in your life with the trust that you're always cultivating the quality of your future. Because, you know, on this plane of existence, we are we are a part of samsara. We are in samsara, right? That's the cycle of death and rebirth. And in this existence, here's a Buddhist thought, we are of the nature to die. We are of the nature to get sick and to die. And so we recognize that about ourselves. And this teaching is about taking responsibility for, you know, what you serve amidst that time, the way that you act, the way that you carry yourself, the, the virtues that you strive for, the consciousness that you strive to embody. And then when the difficult times happen, because they're going to, maybe we start to think more critically about the way that we act and, and the way that we show up and not just the actions that we perform, but like, what are we performing them toward? What's motivating that action? Because if it's more greed, more delusion, then we're going to go further into confusion. But maybe we have an opportunity to stop and inject consciousness right here, right now into this moment. And then we realize, man, this moment really does matter. It matters immensely as much as any other moment that we've ever been privy to. I think that's what a good teaching of karma gives you. Thanks, guys. You are so beautiful, you are complete. You are the beggar you meet on the streets. You are divine and you are inclined to be. We are pray to God that you will be free, yeah. I want you to run, feel the grass on your feet And I want you to share with all that you mean Cause we are one race, we are one family When you find your soul, there's no room for greed, yeah So come, come mothers, come, come fathers And come, come sister, come, come brothers Come the whole world, see what you learn now Cause all I wanna say is namaste to you So let this light shine down upon you all Cause I know now where I'm going And I take you all alone And I'm smiling in my eyes And I see praises in my soul Come the rivers and jump on tears We are one Surrender to life, I'm not my shiver. Yeah. 
Sisters, come, come, brothers. And I said, come the whole way. 